Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamat. And I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode today, which is part two of our acute severe asthma management. Today, we discuss invasive mechanical ventilation of the acute severe asthmatic admitted to the PQ. Let's do a quick short case. A patient with history of asthma presents to the PICU with decreased air entry. The patient has somnolence, hypercarbia, and is drooling. The patient is hypoxemic and has seesaw breathing. Rahul, let's dive right into this. What are the indications for intubating a child with acute severe asthma? Absolute indications include altered mental status, as we saw in this case, which can be preceded by obtundation as well as agitation. Remember, somnolence in the setting of hypercapnia is actually going to be a late finding. You will have patients initially be very agitated. Other indications are going to be cardiac and respiratory arrest. And a lot of these relative indications that I'm going to cover should be decided on a case-by-case basis. So one of them is progressive exhaustion despite being on maximum therapy. Also, you should consider profound hypoxemia, refractory to supplemental oxygen administration, which could indicate respiratory failure. Now, the decision to intubate should not be taken lightly and should not be solely determined based on blood gas results. And I think that's a take-home point. So, Pradeep, can you shed some light on how we prepare the intubation of a patient with acute severe asthma? Rahul, first and foremost, we take the intubation of a patient with asthma very seriously. In fact, we try the whole kitchen sink to avoid intubating any asthmatic. But there will be times when we have to intubate, especially for the indications that you just mentioned. Intubation will worsen the patient's bronchospasm and put the patient at risk for barotrauma as well as cardiovascular collapse. Preparation is the key. A team huddle and mapping prior to procedure to intubate is the key. Every person in the room should have clear roles and responsibilities. Scenarios of what to do if X happens should be clearly laid out to the team by the team leader, preferably the attending or a senior fellow. The senior most experienced person should manage the airway. At least two dedicated respiratory therapists to provide bag mask ventilation as well as manage the ventilator are required. Nursing roles to push meds, chart the virals and other activities, as well as roles for the resource nurses to help in case of cardiac arrest should be clearly laid out. Additionally, facilities that have access to isofluorine should have that ready to go. We typically give a heads up to our ECMO team to be on standby. Now, prior to intubation, I typically have central access or multiple large bore PIVs if possible. Keep crystalloid boluses ready for hypotension. We also have periarrest epinephrine as well as an epinephrine infusion ready for any hypotension, bradycardia, or cardiac arrest. For intubation, we typically use ketamine, fentanyl, and rocuronium. Some centers may use succinylcholine. We use cuffed endotracheal tubes. We don't bag mask at fast rates, but rather wait for full expiration prior to the next breath is delivered. 
These patients require slow respiratory rates with very prolonged expiratory times to allow for adequate gas exchange and lung volumes. A helpful technique is to put the stethoscope and auscultate at the lower neck for the disappearance of expiratory visas prior to starting the next bag mass ventilation. We sometimes place a nasogastric tube to prevent gastric distension. If there is hypoxia, hypotension, which is not improving with fluids, ventilator manipulation, a consideration for tension pneumothorax should be given, especially if there is asymmetric chest rise. Bedside point-of-care ultrasound can be used to make that diagnosis. Pradeep, thank you so much for giving us a picture of how the room should look when we're intubating an asthmatic. Just as a summary for our listeners, intubation of an asthmatic is a high-risk procedure and requires a team approach, proactiveness, and anticipation. You have to be proactive, not reactive. Now, intubation should be approached cautiously in patients with severe acute asthma exacerbations because manipulation of the airway can cause laryngospasm and worsening of bronchoconstriction. Rahul, what are some of the principles we should all follow prior to initiation of mechanical ventilation in an asthmatic after intubation? That's a great question. So we have our asthmatic in front of us, just got intubated. Now let's move on to the next period. It is important to note that most complications of intubating an asthmatic happen in the immediate post-intubation period. So when it comes to actually placing the endotracheal tube, that is just half the battle. Now you may be dealing with hypoxemia, hypotension, tension pneumothoraces, as well as even cardiac arrest, which all can happen upon initiation of positive pressure ventilation. One of the more important causes of hypotension is hyperinflation, and because you have that increased positive intrathoracic pressure, you're going to have a decreased venous return. Slowing down manual bag mask ventilation, even if that means disconnecting the patient from the ventilator and allowing for a brief period of apnea, pressing on the rib cage to decrease that amount of hyperinflation may be necessary. Hypotension should respond to fluid boluses and this decreased amount of manual bagging or ventilator rate. Let's go ahead and talk about dynamic hyperinflation. Now, severe airflow obstruction results in an actual incomplete exhalation, resulting in this dynamic hyperinflation. Remember, asthma is going to be an obstructive lung disease. Progressive dynamic hyperinflation leads to an end expiratory lung volume that reaches a new equilibrium that is higher than the FRC. As air is trapped, your residual volume is going up, so your FRC is going to go up. In the early stages of asthma, the increased lung volumes increases pulmonary elastic recoil pressure, thus increasing pulmonary expiratory flow and the expansion of small airways that then creates less expiratory resistance. Lung volume will reach a point where entire tidal volume can be expired during the available exhalation time. However, this process becomes maladaptive in a severe asthmatic, such that hyperinflation required to maintain normal capnia cannot be maintained as it would expand total lung capacity. Positive pressure ventilation actually worsens your dynamic hyperinflation, especially if the ventilator settings are aimed at normal capnia. 
positive pressure ventilation may also increase the risk of hypotension and pneumothoraces. The initial rule of thumb when you have a patient with asthma who is going to be on the mechanical ventilator is to use low tidal volumes and low respiratory rates to allow for controlled hypoventilation and permissive hypercapnia. Pradeep, what would be your initial ventilator settings for an asthmatic? Rahul, that's a great question. Uh, What we typically do is we use pressure-regulated volume control, or PRVC. We set a tidal volume of 8 to 12 ml per kilo and reduce the tidal volume accordingly to generate a plateau pressure of, say, 30 centimeters water. A respiratory rate of 6 to 10 per minute and an eye time of 1.5 seconds, which allows for an expiratory time of anywhere from 4 to 9 seconds. In the patient who is chemically paralyzed using a neuromuscular blocker, we set the PEEP initially at zero. Peak pressures in the 50s are expected, initially due to airflow obstruction, but plateau pressures of 30 or below should be reassuring. An inspiratory hold will determine the plateau pressure, whereas an expiratory hold will give us information about the auto-PEEP. The applied PEEP should be set below the auto-PEEP in a spontaneously breathing patient in order to decrease the trigger work. Another ventilation strategy which is comfortable for the patient is a use of pressure support ventilation with PEEP. PEEP narrows the gap between proximal and distal airway pressures during hyperinflated obstructed state. Pressure support facilitates inspiration while decreasing the work of breathing. The patient determines the eye time, respiratory rate, and depth of each breath. In summary, respiratory rates that are low, 10 to 12, tidal volumes that are going to be around 8 ml per kilo, setting the sensitivity for triggering a ventilator-assisted breath at around negative 2, as well as allowing adequate expiratory time, IDE ratios anywhere from 1 to 4 up to 1 to 5, are all important mechanical ventilator points when it comes to asthma. Rahul, what are the variables that you would like to closely monitor during ventilation of a child with acute severe asthma? That's a great question. I think when it comes to an intubated asthmatic, we need to constantly reassess. This means that we will be going to the bedside with frequent auscultation. We will also be observing our vital signs, especially your hemodynamics. You want to really pay attention to the flow volume loops on the mechanical ventilator, the pressure volume loops, as this can give us really useful information about whether the patient is getting worse, better, or the same. Monitoring peak to plateau differences tells us about the airway resistance. And as you are going to have a narrowed gap between your peak and plateaued, you can determine that the patient may have some improved airway resistance. Following the capnography waveform can also give us information about lung emptying. Rahul, that's excellent. What are the sedation analgesia uh, therapies that you use in the intubated asthmatic? We really prefer to use ketamine with low-dose benzodiazepines in the background, such as midazolam. Initially, we're going to chemically paralyze these patients using rocuronium to abolish spontaneous respirations, which can add to the dynamic hyperinflation and hypercapnia, which we talked about. If we use isofluorine gas, we will actually discontinue all other sedatives because isofluorine is a general anesthetic. We also will discontinue the use of analgesics and neuromuscular blockers. 
the use of a steroid along with neuromuscular blockers can actually add to the neuromuscular weakness in critically ill children. So we should really consider early stoppage of neuromuscular blockers to reduce this critical illness myopathy. This will be case-by-case dependent. Pradeep, can you talk about the use of isoflurane in a child with near-fatal asthma? Yes, Rahul, in- inhalational anesthetics such as isoflurane can be delivered by means of an anesthesia machine that feeds into the low-pressure gas port of a conventional mechanical ventilator or via a dedicated anesthesia ventilator with its own vaporizer. Isoflurane is preferred over others as it has no negative inotropic effects, but it can cause hypotension due to peripheral vasodilatation. Typical concentration used is anywhere from 0.5 to 2%. Appropriate scavenging of the vase gas is important so as to not to expose the staff to isoflurane. The exact mechanism of action remains unclear. Studies indicate that inhaled anesthetics reduce vagal tone and reflexes as well as alter circulating catecholamines and beta receptor sensitivity. Inhaled anesthetics may also have a direct relaxation effect on airway smooth muscle. Potential neurotoxicity, especially in the very young, is a concern, and withdrawal with prolonged use has been seen. Improvement is seen as early as within 30 minutes of initiation of isoflurane, and typically by 12 hours. Some refractory cases may need isoflurane for 2-3 days. Inhaled anesthetics should not be used in patients at risk for malignant hyperthermia. To summarize, isoflurane is an inhaled anesthetic which can be employed in near-fatal asthma by creating smooth muscle relaxation in the respiratory tree. As isoflurane is a potent anesthetic that has a smooth muscle relaxation effect, we must be mindful of the hemodynamic effects of this therapy as well as contraindications. Rahul, what is the role of ECMO in near-fatal asthma? Pradeep, this is a great question and it was great to dive into the literature. Some refractory cases of near-fatal asthma which do not respond to isoflurane or have severe air leaks, cardiac arrest, these are all patients that you may consider uh, as candidates for ECMO. Mechanical ventilation of patients with near-fatal asthma is actually very challenging, and high ventilator settings may actually cause lung injury, hemodynamic instability, and this could be due to barotrauma as well as the dynamic hyperinflation, which is a recurring theme of this podcast. When we looked at the ELSO registry data that was published in 2017 in Critical Care, we found studies that support ECMO for adults with asthma and a successful decannulation in about 85% of these patients with a survival to discharge in about 83% of the patients. Non-survivors were older in age, had a lower pH, and higher PEEP, as well as a higher post-ECMO oxygenation requirement. Post-ECMO driving pressures significantly was associated with in-hospital mortality. The use of full-flow VV ECMO for refractory asthma in children is not uncommon and has actually been described as case reports as well as small studies. An ELSO registry report published in 2009 in Critical Care Medicine on the use of ECMO in children with severe asthma reported a median ECMO time of 94 hours and was actually associated with a 94% survival. 9% of the children placed on ECMO had a cardiopulmonary arrest 
before ECMO initiation. The presence of cardiorespiratory arrest or neurological injury was not associated with higher mortality. A more recent study of children with rhinovirus who were cannulated on ECMO actually had a reported survival of 100%. Pradeep, as these patients have hypoventilation due to obstruction, what are some of the cutting-edge therapies recently highlighted in the literature? Great question, Rahul. E-core or AV-core, which requires double human cannula, is a more recent strategy and is designed to remove CO2. But unlike ECMO, it does not provide uh, significant oxygenation. Essentially, ECOR uh, consists of a drainage cannula placed in a large central vein, a pump, a membrane lung, and a return cannula, or sometimes a double lumen BV cannula. Blood is pumped through the membrane and CO2 is removed by diffusion. In contrast to ECMO, where the need for oxygenation requires high blood flow rates, uh, ECOR allows much lower blood flow rate to remove the CO2. ECOR does not provide for oxygenation, which ultimately most near-fatal asthma patients may require due to some viral or bacterial infection affecting the lungs, as well as it does not provide for hemodynamic support as ECMO would. There are no randomized control trials or large studies to compare the outcomes of ECMO versus ECOR in children with near-fatal asthma to assess the superiority or benefit of one over the other. Thanks, Pradeep, for highlighting the use of ECOR therapy as well as ECMO. I did want to highlight in Chapter 50 in Furman and Zimmerman's textbook of uh, pediatric critical care, Dr. Steve Shine and colleagues highlight that the use of extracorporeal life support or ECMO has been reported in the management of asthma in very few patients who continue to especially have a high degree of clinical instability despite maximal therapy. Moreover, only 4% of patients in the ELSO registry have had runs for near-fatal asthma. The survival rate for persons with near-fatal asthma necessitating ECMO is approximately 81%, which is actually very remarkable considering that the vast majority of these patients were extraordinarily sick and had failed to respond to very aggressive treatment as well as traditional mechanical ventilation. So to summarize today's episode, number one, intubation of an asthmatic is a high-risk procedure and requires a team approach, proactiveness, and anticipation. Number two, ventilator strategies include allowing for expiration by modulating the I-to-E ratio, decreasing the respiratory rate, and limiting the tidal volume. Isofluorine and ECMO are last-ditch efforts in near-fatal asthma and should be performed in quaternary care facilities. This concludes our episode on near-fatal asthma and its ventilation management. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by myself, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimenia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.